so, so 2 Samuel, if you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Samuel. We're going to be looking at, at chapters 5 and 6 this morning. 2 Samuel chapters 5 and 6. And so I've titled this message, David's Reign Begins. And so this morning, the, the last week we saw David's reign kind of begin. Uh, this week we see his reign begin. It's been a long time coming. We've been waiting for David to, to take the throne for a long time. Uh, so it's been a long time coming. And in the events of this chapter, uh, these two chapters, five and six, they're significant. So they're significant in the life of David because he's been waiting so long for this. But it's also significant in the life of Israel. So, so the events of these two chapters, the dynamics at work in David's rule commencing. So as David comes to the throne, ascends to the throne, what, what we see here, we don't really have a real life example to relate it to. So we can't really relate to what's happening in Israel in these two chapters. What I mean is this. So in David, in the monarchy in Israel, there's a combination of two spheres in one ruler. And these, the combination of these two spheres is something that I assume none of us have ever experienced. Because David, as he's anointed king, ruler of Israel, his rule, right, it's, it's political. So we know that. We hear king, we think political. So his rule is political, but as we'll see, it's also a very spiritual rule. And so those are two spheres. We're going to see in chapter 5, David solidifying his political rule, but we're also going to see in chapter 6, David does something to establish his spiritual rule. And in both of these realms, we'll see that David is a good ruler. He's a good ruler of Israel, and it's good for Israel that they have a king who, who rules over both of these spheres. And as we see this dynamic at work, as we see the political and spiritual ruler in one office, what we don't want to do is, is long for the next political election here in our nation. That's, what we, that's not what we do, right? Because we're never going to have that. This spiritual office of political and spiritual ruler, this, this one office was unique to Israel. And so when we see hints of this in David, our longing shouldn't be for something that's going to happen here in our nation. Our longing should instead be for the return of Christ because Christ is the only one in the person of Christ is the only time that we'll ever see this type of king again. Okay, so, so we should appreciate what, what happens with David ruling in this comprehensive rule, but, but this rule should, should point us to Christ, and, and we should long for his return. So that's what we're going to see, this political and spiritual rule of, of David. So, so the outline that I have, uh, chapters 5 and 6, there, there's four points that we'll be going through, so if you're taking notes, you can, you can jot these down. So first point, we're going to see David becoming king over all of Israel. So we'll see that just in the first five verses of chapter 5. And then second, we'll see David in Jerusalem. So, so he'll make Jerusalem his capital city. We'll see that in, in verses 6 through 16 of chapter 5. And then the end of chapter 5, we're going to see David defeating the Philistines, not once but twice. Okay, and then, then the fourth point that we'll see is, is all of chapter 6, which is David bringing the ark to Jerusalem. And that's where we'll see the, the spiritual aspect of David's rule. So let's begin here in, in chapter 5. Now, I'm not, not going to read all of chapter 5. We'll read some of chapter 6 in a little bit, but, but here at the outset, look at chapter 5. You can, you can follow along verses 1 through 5. We see David becoming king over Israel. So, so chapter 5, we, we see, picks up right where the story left off in chapter 4. So last week, you, if you remember, if you weren't here, I'll, I'll remind you. Last week, Saul was king, Saul died, and last week you saw all the other potential heirs to Saul's throne were eliminated. So now, the only clear option for king, now that now the line of Saul is dead, now it's David. David is the next king. That's the only rational option for Israel. 
And so, the transition between chapters 4 and 5, right, David has been ruling in Hebron for seven years. Remember, he was anointed the, the king over, over Judah. He ruled there for seven years, and then after he, he's reigned for seven years, then Israel, so, so remember, there's two, two parts of Israel. There's Judah, then there's, then there's all of Israel. And so seven years after, when all of this is, it's clear Saul's not going to rule, his heir's not going to rule, they come to David, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5, all the tribes, so this is comprehensive, all the tribes in Israel, they come to David at Hebron, and they're coming to make him king. So, so they recognize, here's the one that we want to rule, and this is something that we as readers, we've been waiting for ever since 1 Samuel 16. So remember, so long ago when, when the prophet goes to, to the house of Jesse and says, nope, that's not the son, that's not the son, that's the son. Oh wait, there's the son, David, anoint him, rise, he's the one, just a, just a boy then. We've been waiting since that anointing for David to come. Well, the time has finally come here in chapter 5. And so notice why these, these elders, these leaders, all of Israel, why they come to David, why they're making him king. No, notice there in verse 1, they say, we are your bone and flesh. In other words, you're one of us. Okay? We want to be ruled by one of us, and you're one of us, so we're coming to you, you're a fellow Israelite. Verse 2, the second reason, they say, you, you've actually been the one who is successfully leading Israel in all of its battles. So even when, when Saul was king, you were the one leading our military pursuits. So we know you're tried and, and tested. You're, you're going to lead us well. We recognize your military um, success. But then thirdly, the reason they come in verse 2 also, most importantly, they come because they knew the Lord's promise to David. Do you see there in verse 2? They said, the Lord has said to you, David, you shall be shepherd of my people and you shall be prince over Israel. And so David, the this, this shepherd boy of Jesse, was now being anointed shepherd over all of God's people, over all of Israel. So they all come to him and say, we want you to rule us. And so as they come to, to, to David at Hebron, David and, and all of Israel enter this covenant relationship, this compact, this agreement, and it's simply this, I'm going to be your king and you're going to be my people. And so, so, so here, all of a sudden, we have, just like that, Israel is once again united under one king. So David is over all of Israel. This is a good thing for us as we're reading. We think, good, finally. And this time, unlike with Saul, we have, we have greater expectations because now David's king. This is, this is the man of God's own choosing. So our expectations are high as David takes the throne. At the end of chapter, at the end of this verse 5, we, we see that, that kind of the summary of David. David's going to rule for, for 40 years. So it's going to be a long rule. So, so we, we, we store that in our minds. We think, okay, what's going to happen in this reign? Well, well, then we turn to the second point, verses 6 through 16 of chapter 5. So, so David's ruled, like we said, for, for seven and a half years in Hebron. But now he's made king over all of Israel. He moves the capital. So he's no longer in Hebron anymore. Right, so verse 6, the king and his men went to Jerusalem. So, so why? So here's a question. So he's been at Hebron for all these years, but now as soon as he's king of all Israel, he moves to a city of Jerusalem. So why does he do this? Well, one reason is that it's more centrally located between the north and the south, and so, so it's very political, right? right? If, if, he's, if he was ruling over Judah, and he becomes king overall, but he stays in Judah, right? That's showing favoritism, isn't it? So, so Jerusalem is more central, so, so there's a political reason for, for moving the capital there. That makes sense politically. But the main reason that, that David does this, it's not political reasons. The main reason that David goes to Jerusalem, why he goes to that city, is because Jerusalem at this time is still possessed by the Jebusites. So Jebusites are still in Jerusalem. Now you may say, well, what in the world does that have to do? Well, well Jerusalem is a, is a city that, was, that God had given to Israel. 
and the Jebusites were there, and when, when Israel was given all this land, they were to drive out all of these foreign people. But the Jebusites had never been driven out. And so David chooses Jerusalem because it's still got Jebusites in it. And so these Jebusites, they, they are one of these, these enemy nations that the Israelites had been commanded to drive out. So if, if you, can, you can jot this down, Exodus 23 and Deuteronomy 7, in both of those places, the Jebusites are listed in this long group of people who the Israelites are to drive out. So it's the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Girgashites. All these people are those who are possessing the land when God gives it to Israel. And they're to drive them out because it's their land. And so that's what they're to do, but, but they never get the Jebusites out of Israel. So listen to Joshua 15. So this is Joshua 15, chapter 63. So, so they've gone in the land, they've conquered a lot of it, and they're distributing the land among all the tribes of Israel to, to go populate the, the promised land. And at the very end of Joshua chapter 15, verse 63, here's what it says. But the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah, could not drive out. So what happened? The Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. So as Joshua's writing, or as Joshua's being written, the Jebusites are still in Jerusalem. And then a little later on, again in Judges chapter 1, so this is Judges 1.21, listen to this comment. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So, result, the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. So the Jebusites were still there. So, and so, so David, in his first act as king, right, he longs to be this king who obeys the Lord. He decides to pursue Jerusalem as his capital city because Jerusalem had never been conquered by the Israelites. They, Israel had never completed the task given to them by the Lord. So David wants to do that. So he's taking his men to Jerusalem. Now, exactly how he overtakes Jerusalem and defeats the Jebusites, that, that takes a bit of an explanation. So look there at verse 6. So the king, so David and his men, they go to Jerusalem against the Jebusites. And here, here's a note about the Jebusites. The inhabitants of the land who said to David, so here's what the Jebusites say, you're not going to come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking to themselves, David cannot come in here. Now, so the city of Jerusalem, now, now here's what we need to know. It had, it had some daunting geographic obstacles. So there's a reason why it hadn't been captured, that the Jebusites hadn't been pushed out yet. So it's this small city on the top of this, this steep hill, and there's valleys surrounding three of its sides. It was located right next to this, this, this spring that's called the Gihon Spring, and seems to have had this, this protected tunnel and shaft system that enabled this small city to have a constant source of water, so they never had to leave. And so the Jebusites, they've been, they've been there for, for so long, they know we're, we're safe here. Israelites have tried to get us out before, they can't do it. They know their city's well protected, so they're mocking David when he comes. That's, that's what they're doing in verse 6, they're mocking. They say, you can't come in here. The blind and the lame are going to ward you off. In other words, they're so sure of their protected city, we could put blind men on the, on the gates and you're still not going to get in here. So, so they're mocking David. But little did they know that David was not like other kings. Look there at verse 7. So, so they're mocking David. Nevertheless, verse 7, David took the stronghold of Zion. Another name for, for Jerusalem. Took the stronghold of the city. That is the city of David. That's what he would name it after he conquered it. Verse 8, And David said on that day, Whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. So David knows the only way to infiltrate and to overtake this city is through the water shaft. Right, so see, this is a protected city, 
right? We've got to get in through the water shaft, and so that's what he does. And he says the only way for us to get in is to attack the lame and the blind of the city. Of course, he's not literally meaning the deaf and the blind. He doesn't, he doesn't mean literally the deaf and the blind. He's using their own terms to describe them. So verse 7 isn't saying, so, so did you notice that David says that he hates the lame and the blind? He's not talking about the literal lame and the blind. He's talking about, he's using their terms to, to define them. And so his animosity is not towards lame and blind. Right? His animosity is towards the Jebusites. So he, he attacks through the, this shaft, through this water shaft in verse 9. David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from the Milo inward. And David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. So not only does David, now he's, he's driven out the Jebusites. He's conquered Jerusalem for Israel. But now, right, he, has, he has a city that's a capital, but it's also a city that's really easy for them to defend. And so, so now they've got Jerusalem. And so after acquiring the city, chapter 5 continues, David gets a shipment of cedar trees and, and these contractors from, from this, this man named Hiram, this king of Tyre. And he sends all these workers and all these trees and they build a house, a palace, if you will, for David there in Jerusalem. And so he's got the city, now he's got the house. In verses 13 through 16, it's recorded that David gets more sons and daughters. Right, so, so you see, this is an establishment of the city of Jerusalem. So notice in verse 13, David took more concubines and more wives. So, so here we see the first mention of concubines with David. Right, so, so we heard concubines with Saul, and we thought, oh yeah, that makes sense for Saul. But now David is taking concubines, we think, well, wait a minute. Should David be doing that? And this is the, the first hint of the problem in the David story. Right, it, unless we assume that David, this, this reigning king, is perfect, we get a hint here that a, that a problem's on the horizon. And he, he's taking more wives and more concubines. We get a hint of a problem. Well, well it's often the case that, that all, this is just an aside, well, it's often the case that, that Old Testament figures have multiple wives. It should be noted that, that having multiple wives is never condoned in the Bible, right? People say, well, look, you Christians, why don't you have lots of wives? They all had it in the Old Testament, right? It happens, it's there, but it's never condoned. In fact, almost always it leads to strife and discord. And so far from commanding polygamy, the scriptures from beginning to end clearly affirm and authorize marriage between one man and one woman. That, that's the pattern, starting in Genesis 1, that, that's sustained all throughout. So David here is not following the pattern. And in so doing, David opens himself up to the dangers and the warnings that have been given. Right? All the way back under Moses in Deuteronomy 17, Moses says to Israel concerning their kings, don't let him acquire many wives. It's going to be a problem for him. And so here David is going against the counsel of the Lord, the, the word that he gave to Moses. And we'll see this, this love of women. It's going to be a snare for David, isn't it, in chapter 11. David's going to get in trouble. His love for women is dangerous. It's dangerous for David. So we should be aware, and, and we're going to see David's son, right? he falls because of his love for women. He falls because of it. So we see a hint here. This is not good for David to be doing this. But, but as he does, he's given more and more children. His, his line is, is growing there in Jerusalem. He's establishing his kingdom from Jerusalem. And so as we move on to verses 17 through 25, we're going to see David's defeat of the Philistines. We should just note, right, David's got a city and a house and a family. Right? So, so he's establishing his political rule. And we can't miss verse 10, that the Lord has established him. Right? It's the Lord doing this. The Lord of hosts was with David. So, so here, as we transition to, to verse 17 of 2 Samuel 5, we see that God's king is ruling over God's people, and things are looking up. 
It hasn't been this, this promising in a long time. And so, so Saul's gone, and here's David, and, and things are looking up. And so third point, we see David defeats the Philistines. Let's look there in verses 17 through 25. So as we turn to David's relationship with the Philistines, remember, remember the last time that David had interactions with the Philistines? And he was an ally. He was with them. He was, he was passing before them, going to war. And he was supposed to go to war with them against Saul and the Israelites, but he was sent back home to Ziklag. Some of the Philistine rulers said, no, 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 David's not fighting with us, so he goes home. So that's the last time that he interacted with the Philistines. And so we can assume that while David is king over Judah for these seven and a half years ruling in Hebron, they don't care about him. He's not a, he's not a concern to them. They don't see him as an enemy, right? Israel is the enemy. And there's all this infighting. David is against the, the house of Saul, so they don't care about David in Hebron. But now, in verse 17, when they hear David is king over all of Israel, right, now they're worried. Now they're scared. And so they, they, they go up looking for David. You see there in verse 17, they, they hear he's king, that he's been anointed, and they go up to look for him. Now, that, they're not going to recruit him, right? When, when they hear he's becoming king, they, they want to eliminate him. He's now a problem for them. And so they go, and David hears that the Philistines are coming, he seeks cover in the stronghold. And so as the Philistines come, it says they spread out in the valley below Jerusalem. So, so he's in his stronghold, and he looks out, and he sees these Philistines who are gathered below. They're preparing to fight, to, to go to war against David and the Israelites. And as we saw before, David continues the pattern that he started. Before going out to battle, what does David do? He doesn't say, okay, there they are, let's go fight. Instead, David inquired of the Lord. Again, David says, Lord, should I go after the Philistines? What should I do? Tell me. I'm dependent on your counsel. And the Lord gives David assurance. He says, you're going you're to beat them. Go. Go down and fight them. I'm going to give them over to you. And verse 20 records exactly that. David defeated the Philistines. Verse 20 says, the Lord broke through the Philistines. And so he, he's victorious. He defeats them. Round one. Then again, notice verses 22 through 25. The Philistines attack the same place one more time. So they go regroup, maybe they come with more, but they come again to fight David and the Israelites. And again, again, notice David inquired of the Lord. He doesn't assume, okay, I did it last time, I, I got the green light. No, he says, Lord, what should I do? And again, the Lord answers, but this time it's not the same, it's not the same marching orders. Notice this time the Lord gives him a more specific plan of attack. He tells David, come against him from behind, from, from opposite the balsam tree. So, so it's, it's like a, a sneak attack, go around and attack him from behind, but, but don't attack him right away. You're going to wait, the Lord says, wait until you hear the sound of marching in the treetops. That's what the Lord says. He says, wait, when you hear marching in the treetops, then you'll know that the Lord has gone before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. Now, it's not exactly clear. What does that mean, marching in the treetops? It's not clear what that means. It, it may have been accomplished through an unusually strong gust of wind. Some people say the Lord is going to send a great wind, and that's when they'll know or it could have been through some more spectacular divine intervention in, in the natural order. So, so maybe some other way, regardless of, of what exactly it looked like, it was to be understood that, that this, when this happened, this marching in the treetops, it was a definite sign that the Lord had gone in front. And so they were to wait, to that, wait for that. When that happened, they were going to go strike the Philistines. And like before, David does exactly as the Lord has commanded him. And again, like before, the Lord struck down the Philistines. He struck them down from Geba to Gezer. And so we see David, the king of Israel, has now successfully defeated not only the Amalekites, but now the Philistines. These are two enemies that Saul couldn't get rid of. And now David, at the outset of his rule, has defeated both of them. 
And so he's established his political presence in Jerusalem, and he has defeated the enemies of Israel, the longtime enemies of Israel. And so I just want to stop here and make one point of application that we see between David, a contrast between David and Saul. That's simply the benefit of obedience. The benefit of obedience. There's a contrast between David and Saul, specifically between their obedience. So, th- so think, about str- think about Saul. He struggled to obey the Lord, didn't he? He didn't want to. In fact, sometimes he even intentionally rebelled against the Lord. And Saul's life, do you remember what his life was like? It was filled with chaos, with stress, with fear. He's always worried about David. And at the end of his life, Saul was mad. He was a madman. Right? So his life of disobedience and rebellion led him down that path. But here at the outset of David's reign, we see a different pattern, don't we? You see a life of obedience. So, so when David has a decision to make, David inquires of the Lord. And when the Lord tells David what to do, David does exactly what the Lord says. He's careful to obey. And so immediately under David's reign, we see these, these military victories. The Lord is clearly with David. The Lord is leading David, and the Lord is blessing David. But, but notice it's not only David that's blessed. All those underneath David are benefited by his obedience. All of Israel is benefited by having a king who obeys the Lord. They all benefit. And my point is simply to point out the fact that an obedient life is a blessed life. And that's the simple truth. An obedient life is a blessed life. For you or for me to think that we can intentionally and continually sin against the Lord. Right? So, so if you think, I, I, can, I, can, I can live in this sin. I can do this. It doesn't matter. I can pursue these blatant, sinful things and disobey the Lord and still have a peaceful, blessed life. That is crazy. That is not the path to peace and comfort and blessing. That is the path to destruction. The blessed life is the obedient life. And and friend, God's commands are not burdensome, right? The the life that follows the Lord's commands is, is life that's blessed. Because God created you and he knows what's best for you. The Lord desires your obedience. The Lord desires my obedience. And in obeying, we find blessing and comfort and peace. Well, let's, let's look at, at, at the first, fourth point, chapter 6. So, so in chapter 5, we see David has established his political presence in Jerusalem. So the next thing for David to do was to establish the spiritual presence in Jerusalem. And that required transporting the Ark of the Covenant. So, so let's look there at chapter 6. Chapter 6, David brings the ark to Jerusalem. Now, before we get into chapter 6, let's refresh our memory. So, so I, know, I know some of you are older, right? Your minds aren't that great. We looked at the ark of the covenant a long time ago, didn't we? It was all the way back in 1 Samuel. And so, so what was the ark? Do you remember the ark of the covenant was this, this sacred box? And it's this gold-plated box that, that had these things in it, these, these symbols of God's relationship with Israel. And this Ark of the Covenant represented God's presence on the earth, right? He was there. He dwelt there on the seat of the Ark. And so it was a significant box. It pointed to the Lord's ruling and speaking and forgiving relationship with the Israelites. So in the box, there are are copies of the Ten Commandments. At, At this place is where the presence of the Lord resided and where the Lord would meet with Moses and others. So it's much more than this piece of furniture, right? It's not just this this little decorative piece, right? This represents the presence of the Lord. And the last time we saw the ark was all the way back in 1 Samuel. So if you remember, the Philistines captured the ark. 
Israel, right, they were being led by, by the, the foolish sons of Eli, and they're going to war with the Philistines, and they lose, and they say, oh, we lost because we didn't have our good luck charm. Bring that, bring that ark, whatever, wherever, go find it, dust it off, bring it here, because God's going to help us if we have his ark. So they go against the Philistines, the Philistines defeat, defeat them and take the ark. So the Philistines have it. Remember what happens there when, when they have it in the land of the Philistines? It doesn't go well for them. So they say, no, we're not keeping this. Send it back to Israel. And so in 1 Samuel, all the way back in 1 Samuel chapter 6, the Philistines, they send the ark back to Israel, right? They, they, they make this, this cart, and they put these cows leading the ark. Right? Do you remember that? It's, it's a comical scene. But in 1 Samuel 6, listen to verse 19. So, so here's what happened. They send the ark back to Israel. And when it, when it gets to the Israelites, this is verse 19 of 1 Samuel 6. The Lord struck down some of the men of Beth Shemesh. So it goes back to the Israelites, and some of the men are killed when the ark comes. Because, here's why, because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He, that is the Lord, struck 70 men of them. And the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, who's able to stand before the Lord, this, this holy God? He's killed these 70 men just for looking at the ark. Who's able to stand? And to whom shall, shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to Kiriath-Jerim, this city, and they say, hey, the Philistines return the ark. You guys come and get it. We're not, we're not dealing with it. You guys come and get it. Now, it's easy to forget about this event, but it's significant because here in 2 Samuel chapter 6, the same issue is going to come up. It's the same issue as in 1 Samuel 6. In 1 Samuel 6, when the ark first returns to the Lord, it's mistreated by some of the men, some of the Israelites. And the Lord strikes those men dead. And the Israelite response to that, which is significant, is they say, who can stand before the Lord, this holy God? Right? They're, they're afraid. They recognize that this is nothing to mess with. The Lord is not to be messed with. And we assume they don't answer the question because they send it to another people. They say, you guys come get it. We're not messing with it. And we learned that the ark stayed in that city for about 20 years, and it isn't he until here in 2 Samuel 6 that the ark comes up again because the king of Israel didn't care about the ark. Saul couldn't have cared less about the ark. But now that David's king, he cares about the ark. The king cares about the ark, so it's now the king of Israel is concerned with the right, right worship of God. So, so David says, We've got to bring, I've got Jerusalem, it's, it's our political capital now. We've got to get the ark here. It's no good for the ark to just be, be somewhere far off forgotten about. Bring it here. And so here, when David decides to bring the ark to Jerusalem, this was a momentous event in Israel's life. The ark's presence there in, this, in Jerusalem represented the most powerful sign of God's support for David and his new capital city. So, so that's what he does. He, he's going to bring the ark here. Let's read what happens. So if you have your Bibles, look at, at 2 Samuel chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11, so, so you can follow along or you can just listen. So David gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000 of them. And David arose and he went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they, that is David and the men, they carried the ark of God on a new cart and they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio the sons of Abinadab were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. Verse 5, And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God, and he took hold of it for, here's why, the oxen stumbled. 
And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his heir, and he died there, right there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day, which is the Lord breaks out against Uzzah. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, into Jerusalem. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. We'll stop there. So so the plan in verses 1 through 5 is to transport the ark. So that they locate the ark. Here's where it was at the house of Abinadab on the hill. So we're going to take it there. We're going to get it to Jerusalem. And the thing that stands out here in this this first attempt is that David and all the men of Israel carry the ark on a new cart. So so, so even that language is is the language that's used to describe who who else carried, transported the ark on a cart. That's how the Philistines did it. The Philistines, that's how they thought they were supposed to transport the ark. So here's the Israelites acting like the Philistines, having no idea how they're supposed to deal with this ark. David, the Israelites, are not following God's word, God's command concerning the ark, specifically how it's to be transported. God had laid out very clearly who and how the ark was to be transported. And so here, when Israel doesn't follow God's word concerning the ark, Israelites end up dying. Right? That's what happens to Uzzah, isn't it? Verse 6, when they came to the threshing floor, right, there's, there's this fest, festive parade. They, they get to this place. We assume they're going to offer a sacrifice or whatever, but but an oxen stumbles and Uzzah puts out his hand because we assume the ark is falling and he grabs it and he's not allowed to grab it. And when he grabs it, the Lord kills him. He, the Lord kills this Israelite who tries to save the ark. And so David sees that. He says, I can't believe the Lord would do that. So David's angry and he says, get this ark away from me. I can't take it. Take it somewhere else. And which is the same thing that happened the first time that an Israelite was killed for, for dealing with the ark in an unworthy manner. So, so the question that we have to ask here, hopefully you feel this question, is why did the Lord do this? Why would he do this? Why would he strike down this man? I mean, wasn't, wasn't Uzzah just trying to help? I mean, did, did God really want the ark to fall to the ground? I mean, what, what if the Ten Commandments break again or something? Right? Wasn't he just trying to help? What, was God here being impulsive? Well, watch out for that God of Israel, right? If you, if you get on his wrong side, he's just going to lash out in anger. Right? Is that what's happening here? I mean, as, as hard as it is for us to wrap our minds around, the reality is that God isn't impulsive here. Instead, hear this, God was justified and righteous in his anger that was poured out on Uzzah. In fact, God could have poured his anger out on everyone of Israel in that procession there just like he was righteous and justified in his anger lashing out back in 1 Samuel 6. The problem here is that that stumbling oxen are never the proper vehicle to transport the ark. There's no normal piece of cargo that you just throw in the back of this car and say, okay, yep, move on to to Jerusalem. What are they doing? Oxen to transport the presence of the Lord? And David, of all people, should have known better. In fact, David did recognize his wrong. Right, so, so write this down. In 1 Chronicles 15, 11, so, so if you don't know, 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Chronicles are, are, are somewhat parallel accounts. So, so they're different ways of telling the same events. And in, in 1 Chronicles 15, 
starting in verse 11, notice what David says. So this is what David says after this event. David summoned the priests of Zadok, the priests Zadok and Abathar, and the Levites, Uriel, Asiah, Joel, Shemaiah, Eliel, and Aminadab. So David gets the priests and the Levites, and he says to them, you are the heads of the father's houses of the Levites. Consecrate yourselves, you and your brothers, so that you, Levites, may bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to the place that I've prepared for it in Jerusalem. Because, here's what David says, because you didn't carry it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us. Because we didn't do it right the first time, the Lord broke out against us. It's our fault, therefore we're doing it right this time. So David recognizes his wrong, and he gets the priests and the Levites to carry it the second time. So David knew, right? God had been very clear regarding the handling of the ark. The Levites, and the Levites alone, are to transport it. And we see here in 2 Samuel 6 that when God's clear commands are transgressed, right, judgment follows. Judgment follows. And, and, and I want to stop here, and I just want to make a, a, a point of application. And a point of application, I want to make it in the form of a question. I want to ask the question, who is able to stand? This is the question that was asked in 1 Samuel 6. When the Israelites see the anger of the Lord, the judgment of the Lord lash out, they say, who's able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And I want you to pause and I want you to ask yourself that question this morning. Who is able to stand before the holy God? And I ask this question not to scare you or discourage you, but but for the opposite, because, because in asking this question, in considering this question, we come face to face with the good news of the gospel, don't we? Who is able to stand? The right answer, no one. No one's able to stand. If you're here this morning, and you're not a Christian, you haven't put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you haven't turned from your sins, repented from your sins, and and put your faith and your trust in Christ, I want you to honestly consider the question this morning, are you able to stand before this holy God who struck down Uzzah for disobeying his command? Do you think that you can disobey a clear command of Lord, live in sin and rebellion and escape the same judgment? Do you think you can stand? Because, friend, the answer is no. You can't. But that's not good news. That's not bad news. That's good news because I can't either. No one can stand before the holy God on their own. You are not able to stand. There's only one basis upon which anyone can stand before the holy God, and that basis is Christ alone. And so if you're not a Christian, right, Jesus stands ready and able to save you, to to clothe you with the white robe of his righteousness that's given to you by faith, not by works. You can't earn God's favor. You can try your whole life, and you're going to try yourself to destruction and judgment. You don't earn it. It's faith in Christ alone. And the good news is that Jesus is, is able able to save any who would trust him. And so if you're not a Christian, hear me say clearly, you're going to die one day and you're going to stand before the Holy Lord. And if you are not trusting in Jesus, you have zero hope. You have zero hope. You'll be struck like Uzzah. And so if you're a boy or girl, if you're, if you're a grandparent, great-grandparent, right, the, the message is for you. College student, There's hope only in Christ, and only in Christ can we stand. And and friend, when we stand in Christ, we can stand boldly, confidently, because we're not standing on our own accord because of what we've done, but because of what Christ has done. 
So hear that word if you're not a Christian. If you're a Christian here, how easy it is for us to forget the holiness, what the holiness of God required. How easy it is to assume, oh yeah, yeah, God just, he just had to forgive me. How easy it is, is, it us, is it for us to assume that God's acceptance of us was something that came naturally? Oh yeah, I've been reconciled to God, yeah. Big, big deal. And friends, if we're not for the grace of God that was poured out upon us in Christ, we would be in the same position as Uzzah, dead beside the ark, strangers, aliens to the presence of the Lord. We'd be only, only recipients of his anger. And so if you're alive this morning, if you're alive, but if you're alive in Christ, rejoice in the good news of grace. You're welcomed and you're received, not because of what you've done, but because of what Christ has done. So the gospel is good news for Christians too. Well, in verses 12 through 15, we see things don't go better for David, that things do go better for David the second time around. So he recruits the Levites and, and, and the others to carry the ark the second time, and they, the, the procession is, seems to say they sacrifice to the Lord this entire journey. So they go from Obed-Edom all the way to Jerusalem. So, so the ark makes its way, and they're stopping a- ever so often, and they're, they're, they're stopping and making sacrifices. They want to make sure they do it right, and they honor the Lord as they transition, as they transport this ark. And so then in, uh, in, in verses 16 through 23 of, of 2 Samuel 6, David returns to Jerusalem with the ark. And so there's two things that we see here in, in these verses. First, we see the generosity of this king. And so, so David, he's built a tent specifically for the ark. Right? The, the, the ark is put there. David offers burnt offerings and peace offerings. And then all of Israel is there. And listen to what the king does. He blessed the people in the name of the Lord. And he blessed them, and he distributed among them. So he didn't say, oh, God bless you, go home now. Right? He says, the Lord bless you, and he gives them, all of them, every one of them that's there, a cake of bread and meat and a cake of raisins. Basically, go home and celebrate on my dime. This is a good day to be an Israelite, so you take all of this from me and go celebrate. Right? This is a generous king here. With the establishment of Jerusalem as a capital city, that the ark coming marks the climax, right? The king is in Jerusalem now. God is ruling and reigning with the king in Jerusalem. It, it marks reason for celebration. And so David's generosity is seen here. So we see that first in these verses. But the second thing, notice, not everyone is happy. Not everyone in, Israel, in Jerusalem is happy. No, notice what else we see. Notice we see David's wife, Michael, Saul's daughter, Right, so she, she's contrasted with all of Israel. So here's all of Israel rejoicing and celebrating. Well, well here's this, this woman, Michael. She's not out among the, the parade. She's not out among the festivities. Right? She sees her husband, the king, leading the procession. She despises him in her heart. And she, she's up in the palace looking out the window. <laughs> Look at that guy. Despising him in her heart. And so, so there's a contrast here. Right? Israel is rejoicing, celebrating. And here's one lady who's despising what's going on, especially despising the king. And so when David gets home, and so he's going to bless his own household, right? That's part of Israel. He's going to bless them, and he gets home, and his wife is waiting for him. Notice what she says. How the king of Israel has honored himself today. She doesn't mean that. She's not saying, wow, you've really honored yourself. Good job. She says, how the king has honored himself, uncovering himself before the eyes of his female servants, as one of those vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovering himself. And so, so, so she's accusing him. She's charging him. She's saying, you, you, you disrobed yourself before all these, all these servant girls. You're acting like one of those perverts. That's, that's what she's saying to him. 
You're acting like one of those vulgar fellows who shamelessly uncovers himself for all the young girls to see. Clearly, far from saying that the king is out of himself, she's accusing him of acting shamefully. She's saying, you're not acting like a king. How unfitting for a king to act that way. One commentator summarizes her charges by saying, implicitly, she suggested that immoral sexual urges, not zeal for the Lord, had motivated David's actions that day. He didn't care about zeal for the Lord and celebrating what the Lord had done. All he, all he wanted to, to, to act out was these immoral sexual urges. He just wanted to unclothe himself, expose himself. So that's the charge, and we know that's not true. And so David, not affected by the charges, he knows, right, they're not true. He's not affected by them. There's no validity in them. In fact, David says, I'm willing to be even more contemptible in your eyes because I know, in the Lord's eyes, I'm honoring him. I know how I'm acting. I have a clear conscience. And I'll do even worse in your eyes if it means being honored in the Lord. And notice he also says, it was me who was appointed king over your dad. Let's not forget that. Right? So, so he, maybe that was a, an unrighteous jab at, at his wife. But nonetheless, right, he says, I'm king. The Lord's appointed me. So if you say I'm acting unfitting for the king, that's not only a charge against me, that's a charge against the Lord who's, who's put me in this position. And so David has been appointed king, and he's celebrating that position, that honor. And so he's approaching Jerusalem. He, he's celebrating. He's dancing. He is acting a bit crazy. I mean, I just, I just thought about this. Think about how, as I was thinking about David and, and going back to Jerusalem, think how long David had been waiting on the Lord. He'd been patiently waiting. He knew he was going to be king, but he was waiting and waiting. And he wasn't taking things into his own hands. He was waiting. And how long he had been waiting to be king over Israel. So, so you can imagine, as the whole host of the Israelites are processing up to Jerusalem, there's, there's music and singing and dancing, and, and David is, is leading the charge, and there's the Ark of the Covenant is there with them. Can you imagine the joy of David? I waited on the Lord, and look what he's done. Look at how kind he's been to me. Look, look at how the Lord has blessed me. So, so David is filled with joy because the Lord's fulfilled his promise to him. And that's a, that's a good reason to rejoice. So David couldn't help but be overwhelmed and respond with joy and great celebration. And so for Michael here, his wife, to be oblivious to the reason for David's actions, it shows that she's oblivious to the Lord and to his ways and, and to what's going on. And so she's clearly wrong here because the last verse of chapter 6 says, Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. So this is an act of judgment against Michael. She was wrong in how she despised the king. It's as if to ensure that Saul's line is now totally removed from the line of kings. Saul's daughter, no kid. Saul's household, completely removed. Michael would have no children the rest of her life. And so as we close here, that's the close of chapter 6. Next week, Lord Wynn, we'll, we'll look at chapter 7. But as we close, I want to make just one final application. An application I think we see from Michael, from, from, this, from this wife who despises her husband, and I think we see the danger of missing the big picture. So that's the application, the, the danger of missing the big picture. So, so, so just think about the scene. Just zoom out, think about the scene. You have thousands upon thousands of Israelites being led by their newly appointed king right, and, and rejoicing and celebrating the fact that, that the symbols of God's presence were now returning to the capital city. So the ark's coming. It's, 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 it's celebration. The right worship of the Lord is being, is being reestablished there in Jerusalem, and the people are going wild. The, the parade probably runs out of sight that way, everyone coming to Jerusalem. 
the sounds of music and shouting can probably heard, be heard for miles, and, and everyone is there. Right? This is the biggest deal, that, the biggest thing that's happened in Israel. And everyone is there except for the wife of the king. She's looking out the window, despising her husband. And I think what Michael is doing is she's missing the big picture. She's oblivious to, to the significance of what's happening. She's, she's blind to it. She's missing the state of change that's taking place in Israel. This is a good thing that's happening. Instead of recognizing what's happening, she can only think about criticizing and judging the motives of her husband who's now leading the procession. Now, I'm not saying that a wife can never criticize or judge the motives of her husband. That's not what I'm saying. But here, I think in Michael's case, she's in the wrong because she's refusing to join in the celebration because she doesn't recognize the big picture. God is doing something good in Israel. It's something good happening, and she refuses to see it. She's blind to it. And so we have in Michael, she's on the outside, isn't she? She's on the outside looking in. She's on the outside criticizing and judging those who are in, isn't she? I mean, what would it have looked like for Michael to be on the right side, to be on the inside, right beside her husband, rejoicing and celebrating with, the, with what the Lord was doing? Maybe later she could have said, yeah, you know what you did with that? You know that dance you were doing at that one point? Yeah, she could have done without that. Right? She could criticize and question, but here, right, she is refusing to see what's going on. What a great picture it would have been to have her beside David rejoicing. What a great blessing it would have been for Michael to see and recognize what God was doing, but instead she's missing the big picture and she's on the outside. And, and so it's the simple challenge, I think the application for us here today is to make sure that we're not on the outside looking in. Don't miss the big picture. Make sure right, that you're not on the outside looking in, criticizing and judging those who are obediently following the Lord. Right? How easy that would be for her just to step back and say, look at him, that foolish king. Ha! When David was just following the Lord, he was rejoicing in what the Lord was doing. So I think just, just be careful of being the one on the outside, seeing God do something, but failing to recognize it and, and nitpicking at, at all these little things and say, ah, they shouldn't be doing that. I know why they're doing that. Right? Don't miss out. Don't miss the big picture. Don't be caught on the outside, judging and criticizing those who are obediently Here's the thing. Criticism and praise don't go together, do they? They don't go together. They don't come out of the same mouth. And so as long as she's criticizing what's, what's happening, then she's not going to be praising the Lord, rejoicing in what he's doing. And so my hope for us, for me, is that we would all be people, unlike Michael, who are able to step back and see the big picture and find reason for rejoicing. Let me pray as we close this morning.